It's Monday, May 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. The sun is shining, gentlemen. Amen. For now. For now, but for I feel now. I feel for like now. we're about to break through. It felt like summer humidity out the there. The 17 morning. weeks of rain. I was looking. Had. I was looking at the weather forecast, and I, I, if I'm jinxing this, I may not make it back here next week. But I am <laughs> leaving to go down to Georgia for the golf tournament. This is this the member guest? Yes, and it looks like we're talking like 90 degrees and sunny. Nice. in Southwest Georgia. Nice, and uh, it cannot come soon enough. We're back. It was a short week last week because of Full Fest. We're going to talk a little bit about Full Fest. We're going to get to some sporting goods news, but let's start with the the deal of the day, or at least the at least an attempt at the deal of the day. Bayer making a sixty-two billion dollar bid for Monsanto. All Wowzers! Ca- all cash? <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. All cash. Here's a big check. Yeah. All cash. I think they said they were going to raise twenty five percent, I believe, of that from a new equity issue as well. So yeah, they were going to issue some equity in order to help raise the cash. But yeah, I think that was part of part of the uh, the carrot, so to speak, is that it's money in the pocket. Some debt too, though. They're looking at sure. possibly getting their credit rating downgraded at least temporarily if this goes through. All right. Largest cash deal ever if this goes through. So, and we'll get to whether or not this goes through in a second. But first, the first question for you, Taylor. Yeah. I know Monsanto is a company that you've watched from time to time. Mm-hmm. What did you think when you first heard this news? Consolidation has been going on, but this is this would be a mega deal um, globally. You look at if they combined these two companies, they would have thirty point one percent of the global seed industry in two thousand fifteen by market share, uh, which would rank them the highest in terms of company specific. They would still be outdone by the field. But they'd be the number one by by a large margin, and they'd rank number two at twenty four and a half percent of the agricultural agrochemicals marketplace. So, you'd be creating the biggest company in this business in multiple businesses around the world if this goes through. And uh, really impressed me was that this was uh, the CEO has only been in place for about a month, and he's making, at Bayer. Yeah, and he's making this big of a spot. He's been there for three decades, so he's overseen some big acquisitions and mergers with Bayer. But uh, first month as CEO, and you go out there and try and make the biggest all-cash acquisition ever. So, um, I think that maybe a little bit too much consolidation in a very important aspect of our global economy with agriculture and, and food production. Um, but maybe that maybe that helps um, as we need more and more food moving forward with less and less arable land. I don't know about you, Jason. I, when I first heard this news, what struck me. Was the amount of money involved? Monsanto is not a small company. It's a forty-six billion dollar company, and yet the sixty-two billion—that that blew me away. That's a lot of money, no doubt about it. I mean, Monsanto is—I um, think in in the last probably three or four years, they've been facing, I think, a lot of criticism just based on what they do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. genetically modified seeds, etc. Um, and you see the two sides. Of the coin, there. I mean, one side you're you're looking at a planet with a lot of people and not necessarily uh, a lot of food, mm-hmm. and, and and certainly Monsanto helps tackle that issue. On the other side, genetically modified seeds. Right. People have problems with that. Some people, not everybody. And and so I mean, it's it's again trying to sort of figure out where where the solution really lies. More than likely, it's in the middle somewhere. But but I think that what that has done for Monsanto, it's really played out in a a difficult period for shareholders. Uh, they've witnessed a, a top line that has 
more or less been stagnant. Seems like it's it's actually on the decline. Margins are being pressured, and uh, I, I I think it's very interesting that at the given given the offer that Monsanto shares are not even close to that $122 price tag. And so, I mean, there are plenty, there's plenty of speculation out there that this won't get through due to regulators, uh, plenty of speculation that it won't go through because of uh, disgruntled bear shareholders. Given everything that's happened in the regulatory environment up to this point, though, and given, I, I, I think this actually could be a good thing, I wouldn't be shocked at all to see it happen. To be quite honest, really, yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, it, it, to me, it, it doesn't. It, I can see the concerns there with like the Halliburton Baker Hughes acquisition. Um, this to me seems to be more or less just adding to the diversity of Bear's business model already. I mean, Bear is a very diverse business. It's not like they're tackling just one. Market and uh, from aspirin to weed killer, right? Yeah. And I mean, it's it's kind of like I mean, what was it, Breaking Bad, where they have like the German conglomerate, conglomerate Madrigal, I think was the company. <laughs> this is kind of like Madrigal, right? I mean, you're just you got this German company with all of these sort of non sequiturs just making up this entire business, and it, I could see where this works. I think that for Monsanto shareholders, this would be a nice. Little way to exit. Um, I can also see why bear shareholders would be a little bit upset. I mean, this is making a big commitment with capital that they don't necessarily have yet, and uh, it, it adds maybe a little bit of uncertainty to their near-term picture. Well, and it's not just Halliburton, Baker Hughes. We've seen in in much smaller spaces, most recently with Staples and Office Depot. Mm-hmm. Uncle Sam of late is not in <laughs> a a. Stamp approval mood. It's like the George Costanza, right? He's just <laughs> yeah. doing the opposite, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, in a, in a way, if this just went through and there were no concession whatsoever, th- that would be the most surprising thing of all. Well, and there would be a very nice little arbitrage play here if that's the case. I mean, someone's going to make some money because that's a nice little spread there between where Monsanto shares are now versus what that offer is. Well, you've seen consolidation already, so maybe they're just maybe it's become more uncompetitive because you have Dow and Dupont. Um, combining and then Syngenta and Chem China combining, so maybe now it's two consolidated. I don't want to say two consolidated because it's consolidating even more if this goes through. But maybe those two are now too big of powerhouses to just be by themselves. So you add a third major company that can split the market share up between those two, and maybe it adds competition by removing competition, kind of deal. It's that triop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think that sounds made up. <laughs> Sports Authority is officially dead uh, over the last couple of days. Sports Authority, which had initially said it was going to be closing about a third of its locations, announced that it will, in fact, be closing all of its locations. So, if you're like us and you live near a Sports Authority, get ready for some really big sales. Because this is one of those times where everything must go is is actually going to be the case. My inner child is kind of crying. I used to love going to Sports Authority as a as a child. That's my favorite store. That's funny. I mean, I remember Sports Authority very well as a child, and and it was just boy, boy, (laughs) times changed. Yeah, yeah. I I don't remember it as a child. I do remember it as an adult, and it doesn't surprise me that they're going out of business because bad experience. It's it's not a great experience, and so. Dick Sporting Goods shares up more than 10% over the last couple of days once this became official. 
We've talked about this company before, Jason. I know it's one that you've studied from time to time. This, on the surface, I think if you're a shareholder and you're looking at this, you think, okay, Sports Authority. Not yes, it was troubled, but not a small, insignificant competitor. No. And so it's tempting to sort of look at this industry right now and think, oh my gosh, we're down to Foot Locker and Dick's Sporting Goods, and right now the momentum is on Dick's side, and, and it's, it's off to the races. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be very easy for investors to look at this headline and think that Sports Authority is going to be closing its 450 or so stores. That this is game set and match, and Dick Sporting Goods is the winner. I would be very, very careful about making that leap, though, because while on the surface, yes, this would be in theory good for Dick Sporting Goods. I think the this is only one part of the dynamic of this market right now, and I think that when you look at the actual numbers where Dick Sporting Goods is concerned, if you in fiscal 2015, their their purchases, their inventory purchases. Uh, about 20% and 12% came from Nike and Under Armour, respectively. And so you're looking at essentially a third of their purchases coming from two big powerhouse names, two big powerhouse names that we love and cover here in uh, multiple services here in the Foolish Universe and uh, stocks that have done very well for investors uh, through the years of Nike and Under Armour. And so what that means ultimately. For investors who follow those two businesses, Nike and Under Armour, you know that one of the big opportunities there for both of those companies has been the direct-to-consumer uh, channel that they have both continued to focus on, whether it's e-commerce or just the Nike and or Under Armour stores that they have in the mall or, or wherever they may be. And so, you can see now that, that really one of the biggest challenges for Dick Sporting Goods is figuring out how do they succeed in the face of Nike's and Under Armour's success in the direct-to-consumer front. Because the numbers are plain to see that that Nike and Under Armour are, are growing by leaps and bounds there. If you look at just some of these numbers, Dick Sporting Goods' e-commerce business grew to be 9.2% of total sales in this first quarter, versus 8.5% a year ago. So, not bad. Right. Look at Nike direct to consumer. Again, this includes e-commerce and and stores. But their direct to consumer uh, sales grew 29% last year, thanks to 56% growth in online sales. In 2015, direct to consumer revenues represented approximately 23% of, of of Nike's total revenues. Now, this is a company bringing in 25 some odd billion dollars in revenue a year. Uh, and Under Armour is very much the same thing. I mean, direct to consumer ten years ago was six percent of their business. And now it's over a third. Um, so I, th- I think the the big question for Dick Sporting Goods going forward is how they manage that relationship. Because for Nike and Under Armour, it's very easy. They're marketing around one basic message: their brands. Dick's has to market around many, many messages, many, many different sports. Um, and and, and Every year, it's it's trying to balance that inventory, figuring out figuring out what's selling, what's not selling. They're trying to build their own sort of private label brand to, to help reduce some of that dependence. Um, but again, I mean, I think investors thinking the sports authority news is just game set and match for Dick Sporting Goods. Think again. I agree. 
I concur. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe you just rely on them to buy your bikes, to buy your golf clubs, these bigger box items that you kind of need to touch. You, you don't. It's not one size fits all, like a medium. I can buy a medium Under Armour shirt in any color, any shape I want. It's a medium. I can go online and buy that. But maybe for some of those bigger items, dicks could stick around for. But for clothing and, and sports equipment that you can buy and fit in a box in your in your mailbox, I don't. I don't think they offer any competition in the long run. No, and it's not easy to get to all of them either. I mean, they're usually in like some really big location where you've got like an IKEA in parking 50- nightmare. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's precisely. I mean, it's just it's not the most enjoyable experience in the world, and you got to maintain that, yeah. right? I mean, it's a lot of money just to maintain that stuff. I mean, it, it's a good business. I I think it, it was a far better investment opportunity. Maybe a decade ago than it than it is today. So one of the featured speakers we had at Full Fest last week was Dan Pink, best-selling author. Mm-hmm. We've had him on our radio show before, and one of the things he talked about was, and he used Dick Sporting Goods and Sports Authority as an example of this is the edge in customer service and how if you look at the way those two businesses were run over the last five years. Part of what Dick Sporting Goods was doing was investing in the customer service aspect of their business in a way that Sports Authority wasn't. They were cutting back on staff and just saying, "Hey, you know, have at it at Sporting Goods. It's not rocket science. Go fend for yeah. yourself." And one of those is still standing, and one of those isn't. <laughs> Without even knowing the numbers, you can just experience that by visiting both of the stores yeah. independently. Yeah. yeah, it's a totally different experience. Um, I, and so I, I wanted to use that as sort of an entree into Fool Fest. One or two highlights, because um, uh, you guys were there for both days. I'm just curious if there was something that stood out to you, either on the investing side we had we had CEOs speaking we had a number of breakout sessions and certainly interacting with a lot of hundreds and hundreds of full members Jason Yeah I mean I guess a couple of things I, for me it's always fun to go to things like these and meet people who maybe you've spoken with in some capacity on Twitter for you know like years and so I mean a couple of people you just you meet people that you you know, but you haven't ever actually met them face to face, and right. then you meet them face to face, and it's even better. You know, I mean, I, I just think it's a lot of fun. Like, I mean, Tobin Anthony, I think a guy that, that we uh, have a lot of contact with, uh, Zane Bengali, another another guy. He was there with his dad, who's yeah. a fun member, and um, it's just. I mean, these are guys that I've known for a long time. I met them on Twitter, but wouldn't have met them otherwise. Wouldn't know them otherwise. But then getting a chance just to even have five or ten minutes just to talk, just face to face. I mean, talking about some of the investing ideas we like, the ones we don't like, kicking around some ideas, challenging some assumptions. I mean, that's just we're we're around our element all the time there, and to be able to 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 meet some people that uh, you've known for a while, just sort of in a different uh, dimension, so to speak. I, to me, it's just a lot of fun. Taylor, what about you? Um, well, a yeah, just how many familiar faces you see year after year that come back to Fool Fest. Um, so the experience continues to to support that people come back. They enjoy the services. They enjoy listening to the analysts, meeting the people that they hear from, read from. So that's the exciting part. But then the, the individual investor is still very much alive. When you see people just raise hands when we ask, "Do you own this stock? Do you own that stock?" The rooms hands up everywhere, which is 
awesome to see that they trust us enough and, and they're buying into the stocks that we believe in and they're they're buying them themselves. A lot of great questions too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of great questions. Yeah. And and both in the, the main stage sessions and also in the breakouts, we use a system which is very effective, which is people just jot down questions on index cards and they get passed to the front and you get you get some really smart uh, questions that get at the heart of okay, well, I've heard your pitch on this one particular business. Well, have you thought about this? And what about this competitor and that sort of thing? And re- really love those. Um, Jason, you mentioned uh, Zane Bengali. I I, I um, got a chance to meet with him as well. And and this is something that comes up at these types of events that I that I also love was uh, finding out what people do. So it's not just yes, they're an investor, and that's what brings them to these events. But talking to Zane about the the business that his dad runs and that Zane works at, and it's a um, it's a materials processing business in Indiana, which is just one of those businesses that I never think about. <laughs> and so to hear him sort of walk me through, like, here's what we do, here's how we you know we get these materials, here's our process for improving them, we you know turn around and sell them. That's that's fantastic. And as you mentioned that. People raise their hands as being entrepreneurs, and yes. the room was full of them. And I think that goes to being individual investors. You want to get your hands dirty. You want to do it yourself, and it just flows right through from their job to their hobbies. Uh, three other uh, quick points. One, uh, there were a number of couples there, and uh, one couple from New Hampshire, John and Amy Swindell. They brought their teenage daughters, Rachel, oh, and, yeah, yeah, Rachel yeah, yeah. and Emily, who not only stuck it out. For two full days, <laughs> but we're clearly taking notes and and able to speak um, at great length at the at the end of day two with sort of what they liked, what resonated with them. So that's just you love to see that with just young investors r- starting to get the bug, absolutely, and and see the light turn on in terms of oh yeah no I actually can do this. And they were from up in New Hampshire, yeah. right? Yeah, we had spoken briefly after the Chipotle breakout that we had. Jim Mueller and I. Had uh, done a Chipotle breakout session talking about the past, the present, and, and you know the future uh, opportunities there. And we had a very good sort of back and forth there. And and I, they made a great point in that it's not so easy for consumers to to see what Chipotle has done to make customers feel better. After going through all of this stuff with E. coli and 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 whatnot, it, it, they were always very clear in 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 your face, for better or worse, about food with integrity and and all of that stuff. But but for for customers wanting to know what have you done to make things better besides just giving away fruit, giving away food and telling us that that things are are better, what have you done specifically? Because unless you're a stock nerd or an analyst and you're wanting to dig into all of that stuff, you may not actually know. And and so I I thought that was a point that really that was that was a point that really resonated with me because I, I think a lot of people don't know. I mean they've they've altered some some ways they're preparing their foods, some of the the distribution, the supply chain, uh, tomatoes specifically. I think are now coming out of one centralized location. But it was just a very good question, very good sort of discussion there on. What have they done to really make things better, and what could they do to maybe communicate that better with with consumers? Right, and I think part of that was they don't have a Chipotle particularly close to where yeah. they live, so that's that's one other hurdle. If you're an investor and you want to go out and kick the tires for yourself, it's not necessarily all that easy. Nope. Um, I got the chance to interview Nell Minow on Friday, and I think we may run some or all of that interview on an upcoming Motley Fool Money show. 
I, I selfishly, I like the fact that unprompted, <laughs> Nell Minow called out the people running Tribune Publishing. She must be a foolery go. listener. I, I don't know. I don't know, but I just feel gratified. I was like, okay, Nell Min- I'm on the same side as Nell Minow in terms of looking at Tribune Publishing and saying, seriously? You're because gonna- what happened today, Chris? <sighs> Once again, <laughs> once again, Sigh. they turned down Gannett's offer. That's if I'm Gannett, I'm just walking away. Well, and her point, her point was, Tribune Publishing. There's no. She talked about the process that a company has to go through when an offer is made, and she basically said, "There's no way they went through all the, all the parts that you actually need to go through in terms of convening a board." Bringing in lawyers, actually going through what the offer is, she said the 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 way that they rejected this offer. There's no way. You mean like the time frame between yeah. next? Yeah, yeah. She's it like, seems no, like this... maybe a control thing. I mean, because they did issue um, it was a poison pill. Or some whatever. well, I, but even today, I saw they had issued some some a decent amount of of equity to to an an individual investor or that investor's fund. Um, at the same price that the offer was for the buyout. So I mean it wasn't necessarily maybe a discrepancy on the price or the deal as much as perhaps it's just a control thing and they really feel like given given time the decisions maybe that they are making will lead to uh, better days ahead. I I just it's that's anyone's guess, I suppose. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck, Tribune Publishing. Uh, last but not least, we had two CEOs, uh, Willie Walker from Walker and Dunlop uh, which is in the incredibly sexy business of commercial lending, and Rob Willett from Cognex, which is a company that is essentially machine dis- machine communication, machine mm-hmm. vision, right? Yeah. The rise well, of the machines. That Cog- sexy. Cognex <laughs> is on the forefront of the rise of the machines, and both of those business leaders. I didn't know either one of them, and both of them were fascinating, compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, very well spoken about their business, but also handled questions about competition, and all that sort of thing. So that was just as an investor, I just sort of looked at those two and thought, "Wow, those are those are two companies that I didn't even consider having on my watch list." And I think now I'm going to have to go take a closer look. Yeah, I'm a follower of Cognix, but I didn't realize how the CEO got the job. Came to a meeting with uh, the founder of the company. He's right. Like, I feel like you're the guy that's going to run my company one right. day. Right. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> which is so great. He's in a meeting and it's a whole bunch of a whole bunch of people and then the the other guy uh, Dr. Dr. Bob, Bob yeah. Dr. Bob essentially kicks out everyone else. <laughs> says, "Why don't you why don't you leave me and Rob alone yeah, for right. just a minute?" And it's just like, "I think you're the guy." Yeah. It's a real dilemma. You can meet these leaders <laughs> and the, and it, it's that that age-old question. I mean, do you want to meet management or not? Because if you meet them, you can be very easily swayed. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But I, I think ultimately, I think David Gardner made a point of this. I think it was in his closing remarks or somewhere near it. But he was talking about ultimately, all of these companies, these things come down to people. I mean, yep. these are people things. And um, he, <laughs> competitive headwinds, market dynamics, all of that stuff, that that's there. But I mean, good leaders, great leaders, even in the face of, of a difficult uh, time, are really. Uh, all the difference in the world, and so I think that just really is another a testament, really, to to the way we invest, being business focused investors, really focusing on leadership and understanding the value that smart leaders can bring to the table. Never ever discount them. 
Jason Moser, Taylor Muckerman, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll be right back.